wonderful. Open your Bible, please, to the book of Acts in the New Testament, chapter number 10. Acts chapter 10 and verse 43 will serve as the text this morning, but we're going to use our Bibles a lot. And the text or the title of our message today is Jesus the Promised Messiah. Jesus the Promised Messiah. Growing up in a pastor's home and always being exposed ever since I could remember to the conversation of other preachers and Christian people and reading Christian books from the time I was a little boy, actually, over and over and over I would hear of the, pa- of the preachers of the past. They would talk about exalting Christ. That was a term they used, exalting Christ. You walk away from a service and somebody would say, boy, that preacher really exalted Christ. Unfortunately, I don't hear that terminology anymore. I, I, I listen for it. And, when I, and the reason, I guess, that I'm explaining to you about it is because you don't hear anybody talk about exalting Christ anymore. At one time, that was the goal of a preacher, among other goals, of course. But if nothing else, that he would, in days past, he would lift Christ up, that he would make people know about Christ. They would, he would seek to enhance their love for Jesus, their loyalty to him, their understanding of him. And he would feel like he had preached a good message if he had done nothing more than just to get people to focus on Jesus Christ. That that was worth, that was a worthy goal in itself. And you would read Charles Spurgeon, for example, and Spurgeon was always talking about exalting Christ. And people would say about Spurgeon, he exalted Christ. And Moody and Billy Graham and preachers like that. And, and today, I don't hear that term even being used, unfortunately. But today, my goal, and in the next three or four Sundays, guess what? It's to exalt Christ. But because we're in the Christmas season, and for heaven's sake, we certainly don't want to forget what the season is about, do we? And if there's nothing else that I could accomplish today, if I could get you to truly focus upon one aspect of our Lord Jesus Christ, then I probably have succeeded in reaching my goal. And so today, we're going to talk about Jesus, the promised Messiah. We're going to deal with the prophecies of the Old Testament that tell us about the Lord Jesus. And then next week, Lord willing, I'll talk about the promised Redeemer and how His redemption is a major theme of the Scripture. And then the following week, Lord willing, I'll talk about Him as the promised king, his promised reign. And then on Christmas Sunday, we'll talk about another aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ. So our focus will be upon Jesus, exalting Christ this month here at the Baptist temple. In the book of Acts, chapter 10, and verse number 43, and we always stand out of respect to God's Word. So if you'd stand with me today, and we're not very long either because we're only going to read one verse here. Acts 10 and verse number 43, to him give all the prophets witness. Now stop and think about that phrase, 
To him give all the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, witness. They witnessed about Jesus, that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Everybody together, if you will, please. Allowed a good, strong reading together. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Thank you, and you may be seated. As you read the Old Testament and running through it, all of it, there is a definite, clear, continuous theme that one day there will come an anointed one of God, and the Old Testament refers to him as the Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word. Sometimes it's translated in English, the anointed one, and other times the actual word is used in your Old Testament. When you come to the New Testament, you will not see Messiah or the anointed one used in that manner. What you will see is the word Christ. So the Old Testament word Messiah is replaced in the New Testament with the Greek term Christ or Christos. The concept of a Messiah is unique to Christianity and to Judaism. You can go to the other religions of the world and there's not this Savior, King represented there or anticipated there. They don't look for a Savior. In fact, they present no Savior. But in Judaism and in Christianity, the whole focus in many ways is upon one who is going to come and one who is going to be the Savior King. Someday a Savior, a King will be sent from God. He will rule over the earth, but before He rules over the earth, He will do many other things. There's, and in reference to Jesus Christ, there is one fact that isolates Jesus Christ from every other human who ever lived. There is one fact that separates Jesus and makes him unique from every other person. He is the only man in the history of this world who had explicit and definitive details given beforehand, before he was ever born, Details about his birth, his nature, what he would be like. Details about his ministry after he would begin his ministry. Details about his death and his resurrection. Details of every aspect of his life. And these details were written hundreds of years before he ever came on the scene. That makes him unique. Those facts were recorded in documents. They were written down. Those documents were widely circulated around the ancient world. And those documents, we know them today as the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament gives details of every aspect of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I wonder who could ever draw a picture of a man 500 years before he was born. Let's take an example. Let's think of Abraham Lincoln, who lived 150 years ago. Let's say that 500 years before Lincoln was born, somewhere over in Europe, we'll say somewhere, somebody said, I'm going to 
paint the picture of a man. I'm going to paint the details. There'll be his eyes. There'll be his beard. There'll be his hair. I'm going to paint the portrait of a man who someday is going to be the president of the United States. Now, the United States hasn't been formed yet. And when it's formed, they will elect a president as their leader. And I'm going to draw his picture. And he won't come on the scene, though, for 500 more years. Well, if somebody did that, you'd say that had to be supernatural. That Nobody can do that. That's absolutely beyond the realm of possibility. But in the Bible, we have a portrait of Jesus Christ. It wasn't drawn by one artist. It was drawn by 20 to 25 different authors who wrote the Old Testament documents. Now, the portrait is not with a brush and canvas and paint. The portrait is a portrait in words. But words can describe and paint the picture of someone just as adequately as can paint and canvas, can't they? And so we have this big book here, 39 separate books in the one book, 39 different books written by 20, 25 authors in the Old Testament. If you hold up your Bible, it encompasses two-thirds of your Bible. Only one-third of it is what we would call the New Testament. Two-thirds of your Bible was written by these men of old, holy men, the Bible refers to them, and they painted each one a portrait of Jesus Christ hundreds and hundreds of years before he came on the scene. In fact, in your Bible, and you might want to note this fact, there are 333 messianic prophecies, messianic prophecies, prophecies having to do with the Messiah, 333 of them. Now, they're not 333 different ones. They're 333 total. Some of them are mentioned repetitiously, the same trait will be mentioned over and over. Others only mentioned one time. But imagine, before he ever came on the scene, 333 details of his life have been given and written down in these documents hundreds and hundreds of years, some of them over a thousand years before the Lord Jesus Christ ever arrived on the scene. Number one, the Messiah, the future Savior King, The Old Testament says he will come at an appointed time. He will come at an appointed time. Now, the Bible begins with a very, very general prophecy of Jesus, just as general as you could be. The first messianic promise or prophecy appears in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, a verse you're very familiar with. I quote it constantly because it's so important. The seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. Hold on a moment. Notice it says the seed of a woman. Normally we would say the seed of a man and a woman or the child of a man and a woman, but the man is left out because a man is not going to be involved. Here we have an implicit teaching of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. The seed of a woman only, not a man and a woman. And then you will notice he is going to bruise, and some translations say he will crush the head of the serpent. The serpent, of course, is the devil. 
And his head is going to be crushed by Jesus Christ, which infers that Jesus, that this Messiah figure, when he comes, he will overcome all that is evil. He will crush and destroy all that corrupts and all that brings harm to the people of this planet. The first messianic prophecy is huge in its implications, of course. And then we go to another one. For example, another prophecy would be in Genesis chapter 22. And in verse number 18, God is speaking to Abraham or about Abraham. And he says, in thy seed, all the nations will be blessed. So this Messiah, he is going to be the seed of a woman without a man. He's going to crush the head of the devil. And he's going to bless all the people of the earth. All the nations are going to be blessed through his life and his ministry. And then we go to Genesis 49, and we find another one. And the scene here is that old Jacob is an old, old man now, 120 years old or so. And he's about to die, and he gathers his, his sons around him, all 12 of them, after whom the 12 tribes of Israel are named. He gathers his sons. And he prophesies about each one. God gives him a prophecy for each of his sons. And he comes to his son, Judah. And Judah is the one that produced the tribe of Judah, of course, from which the word Jew comes. And uh, Judah became a separate nation after they had a civil war. And so it was the biggest of the tribes. And Jacob puts his hands on the head of his son, Judah, and he says, the scepter, wait a minute, the scepter is what? The scepter is the staff that a king carries. It's the symbol of his authority. It's like a mace. The king holds it as the symbol of authority in whatever kingdom he lives, the scepter. The scepter will never depart from Judah, from the Jews, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until shallow come. If you're looking in your Bible, you may want to circle the word shallow. It's the same word as for Messiah. So the authority symbol of a king will never depart from the tribe of Judah, or a lawgiver from between his feet until the Messiah makes his appearance here. And then I go to Deuteronomy chapter number 18 and verse 15. And there's another characteristic here. We're gradually filling in the portrait here of the one who is going to come, the Messiah. I come to Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. I'm going to read a little bit more than we have up there. Deuteronomy 18 and 15, the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee, and the thee there is Moses, who is speaking to the children of Israel. The Lord will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, Moses said, and to him shall you hearken. And then down in verse 18, he says again, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak unto them all that I command him. And it will come to pass that whatsoever or whosoever shall not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak when he comes in my name, I will require it of him. And so you have here a prophecy 
that the one who is coming is going to be like the prophet Moses who was speaking these words. And Moses represented a whole new era. So the inference is that when this Messiah comes, something something tremendous is going to happen, that an old way is going to pass away and a new era is going to begin. It's going to be a time of transition when this uh, Messiah figures come, when the Messiah figure comes. So he's going to come. And then, most climactic of all, and I want you to turn with me in your Bible to Daniel chapter number 9, and it actually tells you the year when the Messiah is going to come. The time of his coming was prophesied. It's prophesied here by Daniel. My chronology says that was 538 years before Jesus Christ was born. 538 years. We're filling in the word picture, the word portrait. And 538 years before Jesus ever came upon the scene, in Daniel chapter 9 and verse number 25, let's read it together. Know therefore and understand, says Daniel, that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem. Stop. When did that happen? That happened in the book of Deuteronomy, or Nehemiah, rather, chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, if you want to write a, a notation there in your margin. Nehemiah 2, 4 through 8. There's a prophecy, where, or there's a command from Nehemiah for the people to go now and build the walls of Jerusalem that it were torn down in the captivity. And so he says, know therefore and understand, from the time that that command went, to restore and build up Jerusalem after the captivity under the Messiah, the prince. It'll be seven weeks and three score and two weeks, and I'll interpret that for you. The street will be built again, the wall, even in troublous times. Now, if you calculate out those weeks there, and I don't have time to explain all that, it comes to 483 years. So from the time that the Babylonian king gave them permission to go back and build the walls after the Babylonian captivity that Daniel was now living in. From that time, 483 years later, the Messiah, the prince, would come upon the scene, the exact year of his birth. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees one day, you don't know the Scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And they prided themselves on the knowledge of Scripture. But they read those prophecies and looked right over them. They missed the obvious. that Jesus, They should have known who Jesus Christ was because the exact year of His coming, His birth, was given to them here in Daniel 9, 25. And if you go down to verse 26, we didn't read it. After three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. And so the Messiah shall be cut off. He'll die. And so his death is predicted here in the prophecies of Daniel. So he's going to come at an appointed time, and of all the people of the earth, he's going to come and he's going to crush the head of the devil. He's going to do away with evil. He's going to bring salvation. He is unique among all people. But something else big about him. 
very, very important. And number two is the Messiah will be a descendant of David. He will be a descendant of David. He will be of the royal family, the royal house of King David. You know, under David's reign, Israel became the largest and the greatest it ever has been. When you look at Israel today, it's, it's a very small place on the map. But had you looked at a map of Israel during the time of David, it would have extended hundreds of miles further in almost every direction than it, than it does even today. And so David is the greatest of the kings. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there is what we call the Davidic covenant. Now, we talked about the Abrahamic covenant a lot recently where God made this covenant with Abraham, but he made a covenant with other people as well. And one of the people he made a covenant with was David, King David. And what did God promise him? And here's a prophecy. I will establish the throne of your kingdom forever. I'm going to establish the royal house of David forever. Now, the Bible doesn't have mistakes in the wording. The Bible is inerrant. The Bible is the Word of God, and God used that, put that word forever into that verse for a reason. Now we go forward from that time, another 40 years or so that David reigned, and we come to the end of his life, and David in 2 Samuel chapter 23 is dying. And before he dies, he speaks. He said, God appeared to me. And he said, he has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things. In other words, every detail is there. Ordered in all things and sure. God came to me and reaffirmed this covenant. He has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure. Now, all of David's successors, all of his descendant kings were a disappointment. Every one of them. Solomon started out so great, and he failed, and then every one of them. And you read the books of Kings and Chronicles and Samuel in your Old Testament, and it's just a record of one king failing after another. Every one of them went awry. Not one of them followed the Lord. Not one of them, not under any one of them did the kingdom ever really prosper. And yet that promise, that covenant is there. That someday somebody in the line of the royal house of David, the Messiah, will sit on a throne and rule Israel like King David did. If you go to your New Testament, first page of your New Testament, the book of Matthew, what do you see? You see a genealogy. It takes up 20-some verses there. I won't turn to it right now, but it's the part that you skip when you start reading the book of Matthew every year because it just looks like a list of names that you can't even pronounce, most of them, right? And then you come over to Luke, and Mark doesn't have that, but you come to Luke chapter 3, and what? Luke has that too. But if you study those genealogies, they were very, very important to the Jews. In fact, those genealogies of every single family, every single person in Israel, the genealogy was kept 
in the ancient Jewish temple, the Temple of Solomon and the Herod, Herod's temple after that and so on. And they had these ponderous records, scrolls, all the way back to the beginning. And why did they do that? Well, that way people could prove their genealogy. They could prove their family line. They could prove who was the heir to the throne. There was a number of reasons why they had that. They used it for taxation purposes, as you could imagine there at the birth of Christ that you've read about. And these were the most valuable possessions or among the most valuable possessions they had. And then in 70 AD, the temple was sacked, it was burned, and all the genealogical records were lost for the nation of Israel except in one place. The only place we have them in the Bible. We still have a copy of those records, not for everybody, but for the main ones that the Lord wanted us to preserve. And in Matthew chapter 1, if you follow it back and study it, it gives the legal claim of Jesus Christ. It goes from David to Christ. It establishes that Jesus Christ has the legal right to the throne through his stepfather, Joseph, who adopted him. And so Jesus Christ is a legal heir of the house of David. But then you go to Luke chapter 3, and the genealogy there is of his mother. It's of his mother, Mary. And she traces her lineage back to David. And there he, we have his biological right, his family right. He's born in the right family. He has the bloodline. And so he is legally the king, and he, is, he has the king's bloodline in him. He's a member of the royal house. So when we skip over those, I, I, you don't have to read them every time, but the point being, they're there for a reason. They establish the fact that the, that the Messiah who is going to come will be a descendant of King David and of his household. There was a famous, famous Jewish scholar, rabbi, writer, and I've read some of his work in the past. His name was Maimonides. He lived in the 12th century, the most famous rabbi of the Middle Ages probably. And he wrote even 1,200 years after the Jews had been dispersed and no longer had a country. He's living in Europe. But Maimonides said, and I quote, I, I believe with perfect faith that the Messiah will come and through, and though he tarry, I will wait daily for his appearance. You see, the Jewish people are, were looking for that Messiah all the time from back there in the, book, in, the, in the first five books of the Bible. And I noticed years ago when I went to Israel, and one of the first things I noticed, I got off the airplane in Tel Aviv. And I'm riding in a car to Jerusalem, and I begin to see billboards on the side of the road. And big billboards, just like we have here, all white, I remembered, black lettering and big letters this big. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. I saw that billboard a dozen times while I was in Israel. And I thought, man, what a blessing to me. Wow, somebody over here is waiting on Jesus. And then I was corrected. No, no. They're not looking for Jesus. 
They rejected Jesus. They're looking for the Old Testament Messiah. They don't believe Jesus was the one. But it stirred something deep within me that I can remember vividly to this day. Billboards on the highway in a foreign country saying, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, because they've been looking for him all these years, and they still look to him. Number three, the prophecies also describe his unique birth, his unique birth. Turn with me again, the book of Micah in the Old Testament, the, what we call the minor prophets. Minor not meaning they're unimportant, just meaning they're smaller in size. Micah wrote about 700 years before Christ, 700 B.C. And in Micah chapter number 5 and verse number 2, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, a little town, a little village, 1,500 people, 1,800 people, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be the ruler in Israel. There's the prophecy. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, and someday he's going to be the ruler. And whose going forth have been from of old, from everlasting. My, what a verse. Not only does it give us the place of his birth, not only does it tell us that he's going to rule one day, the Messiah, but thirdly, it tells us that he is, has existed from everlasting. Everlasting there means eternity. There's something about him that's different than any other person who's ever lived. He is supernatural. He is unlike, he is absolutely unique. There's something, uh, something of a mystery about him, something we can't quite grasp. This person who has been from of old, from eternity, is going to come and be born in Bethlehem, and someday he's going to rise to be the ruler of the nation. And then we go to a more familiar one, all of these describing his, his unique birth. And we then go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 7 and verse 14. This one's more familiar to you. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a child. The, vir- the prediction of the virgin birth of Christ. There's always been a controversy about that word virgin because in the Old Testament, some people say it could mean a young woman. Now, I believe that's an incorrect interpretation, but it doesn't really matter that much because if you go to Matthew in the New Testament and you go to chapter 1 and verse 23, it uses the word virgin again, but this time there's no doubt about what it means. The word virgin in Matthew 1 and 23 means a woman who's never had a sexual relationship. So it's very, very clear what it means there. So the prophecy is that a virgin girl will conceive a child, and she'll bring forth a male child, and he will be the ruler, the Messiah of Israel. Then at the end of it, Notice what it says. He will be called Emmanuel. And here the portrait is filling in more and more and more as we look at it. 
Because what does Emmanuel mean? It means God is with us. That when Jesus came, not only was there a son given, or a son was born, but God came to live among us. For the first time in 4,000 years of human history, the incarnation, God broke into human history. Do you know that there's no record anywhere in any country of anybody ever being born before this whose name was Emmanuel? This is a first of first. No record anywhere of anybody ever having been born whose name was God is with us. But that was our Lord, our Messiah. There's something else about his birth that makes it unique. And that innocent children were murdered. They were killed by the king who was seeking to wipe out the bloodline so he would have no competition. And he heard that the, that the king of the Jews had been born. The wise men told him that. And so Jeremiah, hundreds and hundreds of years, over a thousand years before, well, 700 years or so before this, Jeremiah predicted. He said, a voice was heard in Ramah, a small town near Jerusalem. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel, which is his description of Jewish mothers. Jewish mothers will be weeping for their children because they are not. They've been killed. And Josephus, a reliable historian, the most reliable of the ancient historians, said that about 200 boy babies were killed during that time in the region surrounding uh, Bethlehem. Herod's attempt to wipe out any future king that might come. And then there's another prophecy about the uniqueness of his birth, and that is in Psalm 72, 10 and 11, because it says that gifts are going to be brought to him when he's born. And so it says there, the kings of Tarshish and of the Isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. And in verse 11, it has a future prophecy that has not yet been fulfilled. It says, and yea, all the kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. And so again, these small details that fill in the portrait, that there could be no misidentification, Nobody else would qualify for all of those things to be done in his life. In Numbers 24 and 17, Balaam, a false prophet, said, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not now. And there will come a star out of Jacob, out of Israel. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. A king will rise out of Israel, in other words. Over and over and over, time after time, these detailed prophecies that absolutely identify Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And then the Old Testament prophecies describe his ministry. So after he grew up and began his ministry, it's described, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. It's like his ministry would be a, a light that dispels the darkness around him at that time, the spiritual darkness, the hopelessness of the Jewish people, 
And of course, over and over, Christ referred to himself, I'm the light of the world. That was his ministry. And Isaiah 35 says his ministry would be characterized by miracles, that he would be a miracle worker, the Messiah would be when he came. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame shall leap and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. There's a vivid description of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ written by Isaiah, again, 700 years plus before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It also said in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, it prophesies uh, Palm Sunday that he would ride into Jerusalem on a colt rather than on a war horse. The conquerors rode on white horses in those days. But Jesus choosing that little colt, that was a symbol of peace. He said, I'm coming to you in peace. And that was, of course, the day or two, week before they killed him. In Psalm 69 and 4, the prophet wrote these words, they that hate me, referring to the Messiah, are more than the hairs of my head a thousand years before he came. And then in Isaiah 53, 700 years before he came, he was despised and rejected of men. And so his ministry, in spite of all of his good deeds, he is hated and he is despised. You know, I'm piling up evidence. I'm giving you verse after verse after verse that fills in the picture. It could be nobody. The Messiah could be no one else than the Lord Jesus Christ. No other person in history would fit this word description that I'm, I'm giving you today. You know, there's a, there's a certain controversy going on. You probably haven't heard of it as lay people, but I have heard of, of it numerous times in various periodicals that I get. I won't call his name, but many of you would know him and know already about this. A very, very famous pastor from the Atlanta area. He said, it's time for us to unhitch Christianity from the Old Testament. Do you see what a terrible, terrible heresy that is? Do you understand after what, I, what I'm trying to do here in my argument to you that all of these references absolutely identify Jesus Christ. How could anybody not believe in Jesus Christ that read all these references? How, where else in history can you give me a parallel? That hundreds and hundreds of years, millennia before he came, centuries before he came, every detail of his life, his ministry, his birth, his death is laid out. Today, I'm not going to get to the death, but next week, I'm going to I'm going to give you the details about his death, his redemption. Hundreds of details, 333 prophecies. And how in the world could anybody say, well, it's time we unhitch Christianity from the Old Testament? No, the Old Testament is the proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Boy, I wish I had three hours to preach to you.
because this is just so rich or just so much here that, I, I mean, I, I couldn't be a skeptic after reading and studying these passages. In Isaiah chapter 9, one of the famous Christian or Christmas passages, unto us a child is born, there's his humanity, unto us a son is given. Who was he the son of before he was born? God. There's his deity. The government shall be upon his shoulder. That hasn't happened yet. Many prophecies uh, are fulfilled periodically. The government someday will be upon his shoulder. He'll be in charge of the government. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. What baby would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace? In other words, in one verse there, you have the prophecy of a child, a human, who is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In one verse, you have the mystery, the mystery of the Messiah, that we'll never fully comprehend that. It's beyond our capabilities, beyond our intellects as human beings. And he's going to come. There's the future millennium there. The government will be upon his shoulder. So let me summarize everything I've said for you here in one sentence that I'm going to read to you. A man is coming who has existed from eternity past, who will be born of a woman, who will redeem from sin, who will destroy evil, defeat the devil, return the world to its pre-fall condition, reestablish the throne of David, and rule the earth from Jerusalem. And that description is given throughout. How is this possible? How could that be? Well, here's how it could be. His name will be called Emmanuel. He is God as well as man. Haven't I shared with you the greatest news you've ever heard in the world? I mean, what could you hear better than this? In an old war-torn world with no hope, hope fading, people don't see anything out there but darkness in the future. Man, here's the Messiah, and God has told us about him for centuries, and we're living at the time when he might just show up before this day is over. Indulge me one more, and I'll quit. Luke chapter 2. We go clear to the New Testament. And now it's the, the baby is eight days old. And Joseph and Mary take him up to the temple for the rite of circumcision that every little Jewish boy had uh, done to him. And they bring him up there, and in the temple there's this man. He's an old, old man named Simeon. And he says, let me hold the baby. And he takes the little baby in his arms. And in Luke chapter 2, in verse 34, he blessed the baby. And he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the rise and falling again of many in Israel, for a sign which shall be spoken against 
Yea, he said, a sword shall pierce through your soul, Mary, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. This child is set for the rise and the fall of many in Israel, a sign that will be spoken against. And he's spoken against today. And he is the rise and the fall of many. In other words, your life and your soul will rise or fall based on what you do with this, with this child, with this Messiah. You will stand or fall in your life based on your relationship with him. You see, there's no neutrality with Jesus. Neutral, you cannot be, the song says. One day, your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? Yes, Jesus is either your Savior or he's the rock of offense that you're stumbling over today. I hope that I have given you enough evidence. If you have doubts in your mind, it would help you come to a conclusion. Jesus Christ is God's promised Messiah. No doubt about that from the Scripture. And I hope today that you would open your heart to him if you've never been saved, and that you would come right now in a moment as I give the altar call, that you'd slip out to the aisle, and then you, you just walk down. At the front, there's going to be our staff. They'll stand here. They'll greet you. They'll pray with you. They'll open the Word of God. If you have a need in your life otherwise, that Jesus Christ could be the solution to, a spiritual need in your life, I want you to come. If you're here today and you're not a member of this church, but God is leading you to put your membership here and serve the Lord with us, I want to invite you to come. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you. I've tried to exalt Christ, to lift him up, to make you love him and understand him and see that there's nobody else in history who could be the Savior other than the one the Bible has so brilliantly prophesied. And so today, if he's not your Savior, you come. If you've drifted away from him, you come and talk to him here at the altar and get things straight and begin today to live for him. Stand to your feet with me, if you will, right now.